I feel like my job this week is not really to be that persuasive or that convincing, and most certainly my job this week is not to be creative. My job this week is to be a storyteller. My job this week, and by this week I mean today and for the next seven days, is simply to point to Christ in the Scriptures and let who He is and let what He has done tell the story. Because Jesus said, not great sermons will be lifted up and all men will be drawn to me, but I will be lifted up. And what He is saying is that our hope is seeing and believing in Him. And so this morning as we celebrate Palm Sunday, this week as we celebrate the Passover Seder, as we celebrate Good Friday, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, I feel that my job is to be a storyteller who points to Jesus and lets him do the work that he must do. We've titled our sermon series here at Redeemer, Seeing Jesus. We've been working through the Gospel of John, and if I was really on my game, I would have had it planned for us to be here this Sunday, but we had to skip ahead to get here. So I promise that we believe um, chapters 10 and 11 are inspired, and we will go back and pick them up here in a few weeks, but I wanted to get to this story, and then there's chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 before Jesus gets resurrected, and so we're going to have to skip ahead next week um, to get to the resurrection. So I promise We'll come back. But our theme remains the same. The goal of John's gospel, the goal of this sermon today, the goal of this week at Redeemer, and frankly, the goal of this church and the goal of the world is that we would see Jesus and be forever changed. Last week, um, we, several of us at Redeemer, participated in a a marriage weekend uh, with, with a teacher named Paul Tripp. And one of the things Dr. Tripp said that really stuck with me was he said that, that for any change to happen, we have to first see. And once we see, then we will be broken. And once we're broken, we will confess. And once we confess, we can repent. And what Dr. Tripp said is everything in your marriage walks down that path. But I'm here to argue that everything in the world walks down that path in two ways. One, we need to see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we will see our brokenness and his mercy. And when we see our brokenness and his mercy, we will be broken and we will confess and we will believe and repent. And so what I am praying will happen this week, this morning, this very morning, is that we will all see the glory of Jesus. And the work that the Lord needs to do in our lives, he will do because we've seen Jesus. So, what happens in the long passage that Stephen just read for us, the end of John 11 and and all of John 12, is that... The hour of the king has come. The hour of the king has come. And so if, if you're not really into long sermons, I'm sorry, um, but welcome to Redeemer anyway. Um, I'm not known for my brevity. And, um, but here's what I want you to grasp from these, this chapter today. What happens in this chapter is Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. And he's honored as the saving king that he really is. 
And then Jesus reveals what's going to be necessary for him to truly be a saving king. And that is that he die and then rise again. And people still don't know what to do. This is what we see in this passage, is that the saving king really came to bring the salvation to God's people. And this time when he came, he was celebrated. And yet, when it became clear that that his kingship required his death, and his kingship required being betrayed, and his kingship required dying on a Roman cross, people didn't know what to do with him. And I'm praying that today we would see this truth and we would know what to do. We would believe. We would be broken. We would confess our need and we would repent of our sin and turn to say, Jesus, I follow you no matter the cost. Now, if you're here today and you're like, man, I've been a Christian for 30 years and I've been hearing Palm Sunday sermons for 29 of those years And I'm glad you're talking to all those unbelievers. I'm not. I'm talking to you. Because what we need in our lives is to see Jesus more clearly. And to see our sin more clearly. So that the Spirit of God can do the work that we need. So Easter is for us. All y'all, as we say in the South. It's for all of us. We need Jesus. And I think the best vibe, man, I've been preaching for like three minutes and I'm already ad-libbing, so this is going to be long. I'm sorry. But the best aroma that we could give off to Hendersonville is that we're a bunch of broken, sinful, hurting, desperate people who have been met with the mercy of Jesus. That's our invitation, not that we're better, not that we're more holy, not that we're more biblical, not that we have better theology, not that we're right and you're wrong, not that we live better, and if you just pull up yourselves by your bootstraps, you could experience joy too. No, our message is we're a train wreck, and Jesus saves and heals and meets train wrecks at the worst place. And everything that happened from riding in on the donkey to shouting Hosanna to saying the Son of Man must be lifted up to actually being lifted up and dying on the cross to actually crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To actually being laid in a tomb really dead and rising again. Every single bit of it was not so we could feel better about ourselves, but so we could experience the power of God. This is our message, friends. We've experienced the power of God. And we all need to see Jesus more clearly so that we can continue to experience the power of God First point for my note-taking, friends. The king has come. The king has come. And so, um, the king has come. So when we were last together, we looked at John chapter 9. Jesus was at 
a festival called the Feast of Booths, which happens in the fall. And now, chapter 12, we're, we're four, five, six months ahead as Jesus is now about to come to the Passover. So what's transpired in that time is um, Jesus has done something really terrible. He raised a man from the dead. And um, the people who hated him, that was terrible, in air quotes, by the way. Um, nobody laughed, so I thought I should clarify that. And um, he, he raised someone from the dead. And so when he did that, like, like the guy he raised from the dead, his name was Lazarus. And the people who hated Jesus and thought he was a fraud, like they really didn't know what to do with that. Like that was like, man, that was a really good magic trick. So, so they, were, they were determined to kill him. Again, that was magic trick, air quotes. And um, because it really happened. And so they were determined to kill him. And so when chapter 1155 begins, Jesus is kind of in, in, in an exile of sorts. Like he's, he's kind of, he's, he's hiding, he's laying low. And um, so the question is, is it's time for the Passover. And the Passover was when all the Jewish people would come to Jerusalem to celebrate and to remember that God saved his people from Egypt. If you're new to the Bible, you can go read the book of Exodus. But, but there was a time where all the people of Israel were actually exiled in Egypt, and God miraculously delivered them. Um, and the, the, the whole event is, is known as the Passover. And so it was time for all of the faithful Jews, and they had this celebration every year. Remember God is faithful. Remember God saves. Remember God is our deliverer. Remember what he did. We believe he's going to do it again. And so they would have this festival every year, and the purpose was to remember what God did and to believe that he was going to do it again. And so the question running around is, do you think he'll come to the feast? Because we know he's in hiding, and we know that the chief priests and the Pharisees want to kill him. And so, is he going to come? And so, our story begins. These are kind of the events of the story. Um, chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus goes to Bethany. And so, we might think of Bethany as like the Hendersonville. Like Hendersonville is to Nashville, so is Bethany to, um, so is Bethany to Jerusalem. I can't speak to how um, pharisaical and how um, culturally um, Jewish the people in Bethany were. Uh, so I don't know how much to tease out our Hendersonville-Bethany parallel, but um, Hendersonville was kind of an outskirt. Or excuse me, Hendersonville is an outskirt of Nashville. Bethany was an outskirt of Jerusalem, and Bethany was where Lazarus lived. Bethany was where Jesus had done this thing where he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's all in chapter 11, if you want to read about that. But we're told that Jesus goes back to Bethany. He goes to Lazarus's house, and um, a feast occurs. So they throw a party. And this is the Saturday evening um, before Good Friday. And um, at this party, we're told that Martha is serving. Lazarus is, is reclining. Mary is anointing. And Judas is complaining. Okay, so at this feast, Martha is serving Lazarus is reclining, Mary is anointing, and Judas is complaining. So um, at the dinner, Martha's serving everyone. That's verse 2. Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. That's verse 2 as well. And Mary takes out a pound of expensive ointment. This is verse 3. Made of pure nard, and she takes the nard, and she anoints the feet of of Jesus with it. We're told, as Lazarus starts to complain in a minute, 
Lazarus then complains and he says, well, why in the world would you be so wasteful? I mean, don't you know there's poor people out there that could use food? And don't you know that you just spent 300 days worth of income on anointing Jesus' feet? And Jesus says, hey, just, just leave her alone because what she is doing is preparing me for my burial. What she is doing is she's honoring me and preparing me for what lies ahead. And we don't need to get uptight about the, the poor people thing because there'll always be poor that you can serve. And Jesus, by the way, is not saying that we should not serve the poor. He's just saying that it's more important to serve him than anything else. It's more important to exalt him than anything else. And so Jesus says, chill. And now, before we look at Judas and go, yeah, man, you just missed the point. Like, let me put some numbers on this. So, um, Get this, remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 plus people um, by the lake on the hillside? We're told in the scripture that that was 200 denarii. That's 200 days labor worth of food. So I did a little research, and so it would have cost in, England, in modern dollars based on the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, it would have cost about $39,000 for Jesus to feed the 5,000 if they just went to Aldi and bought the food, Okay. So what that means is, if we do a little conversion, Mary broke open a $59,000 jar of perfume to anoint Jesus' feet with it. So before we start casting stones at Judas too quickly, let's just understand that our church is currently trying to raise $75,000 to pay for some improvements around here, and Mary just broke open a $60,000 jar of perfume to anoint the feet of Jesus, and Jesus says, it's cool because you only get to prepare me for my death and my burial and my resurrection by which I purchase your salvation once. It is far better to exalt me than it is to count the money. And I should say amen and go home, but we have more to cover. So this feast occurs, and then we're told that the next day, so that would be the Sunday leading into Holy Week, leading into Easter Week, that verse 12, the crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So now they're going to move. Oh, oh, hold on, hold on. i got to go back. i got to go back. Sorry. At that feast, the last thing that happens is the Jews decide to add Lazarus to the, to the hit list as well. Okay? So now it's like, yeah, Jesus really did raise Lazarus from the dead, and this thing really is spiraling out of control, and people really are believing him. So not only do we need to kill Jesus, but we've got to kill Lazarus, too. We've got we to put the whole story to bed. And it's starting to sound like a mafia hit, right? Okay? Probably a good parallel. Um, so then, next verse, chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 12, verse 12 and following. The next thing that happens is Jesus enters Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had come and gone from Jerusalem so many times, but this one was different. I think it's really important that we understand this entrance was different, and it was different on purpose, and it was different to fulfill the Scripture, and it was different to prepare Jesus and prepare the people for what was coming. So we're told the next day that the crowd hears that Jesus is coming, and um, 
they basically whip up a parade of sorts. They, they rip, the, the parade route was already set. It was the road from Bethany up to Jerusalem. But they, they whip up a parade of sorts, and they go and they grab palm branches, and they throw cloaks on the ground, and Jesus gets on a donkey, and they shout, Hosanna. And none of that really means anything to our modern English minds. It just sounds like, okay, they had a party. But let's see if we can piece some of that together. They put this parade together, and they got palm branches. Okay? The palm branch at the last feast, the Feast of the Booze or the Feast of the Tabernacles, there was a part of that feast where the Jewish people would run around with palm branches and shout, Hosanna, which means save us, deliver us, O God. So they would get palm branches and they would go run around and they would shout, save us, God, save us, God, save us, God, save us, God. So they got palm branches to welcome Jesus. I think you see some of the significance going on there. And then they shouted, Hosanna at Jesus, which means save us, deliver us. And then they shouted at Jesus, Blessed, which is good, modern, rest, young, restless, reformed lingo for glorif- be glorified, be exalted, because you're God's king over God's people. So they get their palm branches, they shout to Jesus, save us, O God, and you are the coming king. They, they confess it with their mouths. They're, they're saying, you're here to save us. Would you save us, Jesus? Please do your thing. Save us. And Jesus rode a donkey, which fulfilled Scripture, because Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, told us that the king of Israel would come sitting on a donkey. And not only did it fulfill Scripture, but it was symbolic because Jesus is not riding in on a white horse destroying his enemies, but he's riding in on a donkey as a sign of coming in peace. So later, at the end of chapter 12, Jesus is going to say, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. If he came to judge the world, he would have ridden a war horse. But he came to save and to invite people to himself and to deliver. And so he rides in on a donkey. And all of a sudden, this is not just a cute story about donkeys and parades and little kids with palm branches shouting Hosanna. But this is a cataclysmic moment in the salvation history of God. God, whereby God's people who were waiting on God's king to come and be their savior are holding palm branches as a sign to say, we believe you're the king and we're saying, would you come in here and save us? And do you know why Jesus received their worship? Do you know why he walked down the parade route? Do you know why he didn't go and hide? Because this time on this trip to Jerusalem, he was coming to save them. This time, on this trip to Jerusalem, he was coming to give them the deliverance their hearts yearned for. This time, as we sang earlier, he was coming to satisfy their souls in a way that they didn't even know it could be satisfied. And so Jesus, in this moment, receives from them the worship that is due him, and he rides in on a donkey with cloaks covering the ground 
with palm branches laid down in front of him, allowing the crowd to shout out, save us, blessed be God's king over Israel. This is the son of David who was coming to keep every promise and to deliver God's people in the way that God said he would. And this is where the whole story, if you know how it ends, by the way, these people who are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are the ones who kill him. If you know how the story is, this is the irony of it. They said, save us, but they couldn't handle the fact that he had to die for, for them to be saved. It boggled their minds. So they're saying, come, save us, oh Jesus. Come and save us. And so, and then we're told, um, verses 18 and 19, that the Pharisees were like, uh-oh. Because now everybody is going after him. And it looks like he's going to win. So, this is where the people in this story got it right. Jesus, indeed, is the one whom God sent to save his people from their sins. Jesus, indeed, is the one whom God sent to deliver us. Jesus, indeed, is the one to whom we should all cry, Hosanna. Save us, O God. Deliver us. Help us. Heal us. Meet us in our brokenness. Care for us. Watch over us. Minister to us. They were right to point their palm branches and their words at Jesus. And I would commend to all of us that our only hope is to point our need, our praise, our worship, our cries for deliverance at Jesus. Whether that's in your marriage, whether that's with your kids, whether that's in your home, whether that's at the workplace, whether that's in, in, in your spiritual place in God's kingdom or outside of God's kingdom, the answer is to look to Jesus and to cry out, Hosanna, save us, O oh God. But, and this leads to point two, point two is his hour had come. His hour has come. How was Jesus to save his people? How was Jesus to answer their cries? And the answer is, he was going to be betrayed, tortured, murdered, die, bear the wrath of God, and rise on the third day. And so we must not forget that we worship a Savior who died for us. We must not forget that our king did ride in on a donkey and he did purchase us peace with God, but he did so at great cost to himself, not in exalting himself. The glory of Jesus was not shown in taking up a throne in Jerusalem. The glory of Jesus was shown in going to a cross. <clears throat> Let me see if I can show you this here. I really wish I had about 30 minutes, but I have about 10. So here we go. 
Number one, go all the way back to verse 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave Mary alone when she anointed his feet with oil so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, meaning that she's going to need that soon to finish the job because my burial is coming. And then verse 23, we're told that there are some, some Greek um, proselytes, that's Greek um, Jewish people who want to meet with Jesus. And Jesus says to them in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus says, the hour has come. And again, to us modern Americans, that phrase might not mean something like the hour has come. What does that mean? Like it's time for the basketball game to start or, or like the hour's over. Yeah, it's about time to go home. But, but throughout John's gospel, every time there was a move to exalt Jesus to a place of becoming an earthly king who would defeat Rome, Jesus would slip away and say, my hour's not yet. Or if they were ready to kill him too quickly, he would slip away and say, I slipped away because my hour had not yet come. And so when Jesus here in verse 23 says, the hour has come, what he's saying is, it's time. It's time. The moment has come. The moment has come whereby I will ultimately be glorified, but the path to being glorified flows through my death. So verse 24, he compares himself to a grain of wheat. And he says this, a grain of wheat cannot bear other grains of wheat unless it dies and falls to the ground and becomes a seed. Jesus says, likewise, I must die and be put into the ground, and as I rise again, I will draw many men to myself. Verse 27, Jesus, knowing that he's going to die, he says, listen, my soul is troubled. It's troubled. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew it was necessary. He knew it was right. And if you knew what was coming, and if you knew it was necessary, and if you knew it was right, you would not be like, yay, the hour. Hosanna. But you would be like, the hour, the hour, the hour has come, but I am going to face it. I'm not going to ask to be delivered from this hour because, verse 27, for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. Do you hear that? If you're one who marks in your Bible, at the end of verse 27, when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, Underline that, because here's what Jesus is praying to the Father. Strike me, kill me, judge me, pour your wrath upon me for the totality of the sins of the world so that your name would be glorified. It's real easy to say, Father, glorify your name as you're about to get a gold medal or as about you're about to have a crown set on your But Jesus, knowing that his hour has come, says, Father, glorify your name. And then we are told, verse 28, that the Father spoke from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's as if God is testifying to everybody on the parade route, everybody who was there, 
what's about to happen is how I am going to be blessed and honored and exalted and glorified. I'm going to strike my son. And in striking my son, I'm going to answer your prayers and I'm going to save my people. Jesus continues because he wants everybody to know that he knows what's coming and it's right. I mean, it's sinful, but it's right. Verse 32. I'm sorry, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Rule of this world in John's gospel means Satan. He will be cast out. How? Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So how's Jesus going to answer their prayer and going to save them, oh God? He's going to save them by being lifted up on a Roman cross. That's how. And he's going to be cast into this. He's going to be killed and buried. So Jesus makes it very clear that indeed their king had come. And he had come because his hour was now. And he had come for the very purpose of giving his life to save and deliver and bring justice and mercy and joy and hope and blessing and everlasting life to God's people through his death. The glory of Jesus was a path of suffering and of death. So we're told in verse 37... That though he had done many signs before him, they still did not believe in him. They could not accept that their king would come to Jerusalem and walk through such a great parade only to die. And we're told that they did not believe. And we're told that the scripture was fulfilled. And we're told that Isaiah the prophet spoke of Jesus when he spoke the scripture. And we're told that even those who did believe hid because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus ends this way. Verse 44. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus has come to deliver from darkness those who walk in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words. Excuse me. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And so here's Jesus saying, I have come to do the will of the Father. I've come to to show the light to the darkness, and I've come to save the world from its sins. I came to save the world, verse 47. 
So, I said earlier that it is right to look to Jesus and shout, Hosanna. So now the question for us as we conclude this morning is are we willing to see that our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Lord, our Protector, our Sustainer, is a suffering servant who did for us what we could not do for ourselves and purchased a salvation that we could never earn and brought us a blessing that we could never earn and kept us in a faith that we could never keep ourselves in for his glory and for our good. Because sadly, we're told in the story that many of those who waved their branches and threw down their cloaks and shouted Hosanna couldn't accept a Savior who suffered and died for his people. Couldn't accept a Savior that said, the blessing that I bring might not be the earthly, tangible blessing that you want to see now. So can we come to Jesus and receive him as he is for what he has done to walk with him and worship him and follow him even if it doesn't fit what we think he ought to do and even if it doesn't yield the tangible benefits that we think he needs to yield for us now? And we trust that when he said on that cross, it is finished, that it was finished, and that he has brought us every bit of the blessing and the salvation that he promised to bring us. That's the question for all of us this Easter season. Will we see Jesus and worship him as our suffering servant who brings our salvation through faith?